Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, made with Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I'm a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the sex lives of college students and how they've changed over time. My guest today has collected more than 30 years worth of data from students taking her university human sexuality course. In total, she has surveyed nearly 7,000 students and has obtained unique insights into their intimate lives. What are they doing in and out of bed? How do they think and feel about sex and relationships? Is sex today different than it was 30 years ago? We'll be talking about everything from changes in casual sex to kink to faking an orgasm. My guest today is Dr. Sandra Karen, a professor of family relations and human sexuality at the University of Maine. She is an ASEC certified sexuality educator, as well as a licensed therapist who specializes in sexuality issues. Her latest book is titled The Sex Lives of College Students. I'm really excited for this conversation, and we're going to dive right in after this short break. Hi, I'm Venus, host of the Venus Cuckoldress podcast and founder of Venus Connections. This message is for all of the beautiful, single, sex-positive women listening to this episode. What if I told you you could have a loving, adoring, and faithful partner and have exciting and thrilling encounters with others, but he loves it that way? In fact, you both love it that way. This kind of relationship is all about celebrating you. You can have that. You can have it all. You can learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com. It's matchmaking for loving, cuckolding relationships. Hi, Sandy, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, before we dive into your work and talk all about sex and college students, can you please tell us a little bit about your backstory? So specifically, how did you become a sex educator and researcher in the first place? What is it that drew you to this area? I'm one of those people who in high school, believe it or not, said, I'm going to be a sex educator one day. And in fact, in, oh, the high school class will, you know, looking to the future, I was going to be the sex educator. And I remember being at my 10-year high school reunion and one of my classmates who'd had a little bit more to drink probably than he should, came stumbling up and said, ha, 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 remember how you wanted to be a sex educator? What are you doing now? <laughs> and I sort of looked at him like, well... That is what I'm doing. I'm very interested in the field. I think in high school, looking around and seeing sort of the, I don't want to say tragedies, but the challenges that many of us faced because we were left in the dark. And it was interesting because we lived, of course, in a time where education is so important and, you know, being educated on all kinds of things were important. But when it came to sex, oh no, you weren't supposed to say anything. And just seeing some of the challenges, the things that people sort of struggled with. So I went on to college and majored in health and family life education, with the intention of being a sexuality educator. I was inspired by a professor who 
encouraged me to stay and study with him, who was he at the time at the University of Maine. And he encouraged me to go on for my PhD. And he said, you know, Sandy, in about 10 years after you've gotten your doctorate and you've worked for a while, maybe you'd like to come back to me, you know, take over my position. And so I went on to Syracuse. It's the only place I ever applied to study. I wanted to study with, at the time, it was Dr. Saul Gordon. For me, he was sort of this world-renowned sexuality educator, and it was amazing. I got accepted, and I worked for him, and I, in fact, was his last doctoral student. It was a double pleasure, actually, getting into Syracuse, because also Dr. Clive Davis was also at Syracuse, former president of the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality, the former editor of the Journal of Sex Research. So it was an amazing experience. And after that sort of journey, I ended up landing a job at Cornell and received a phone call from my advisor back here in Maine saying, hey, I'm retiring. I think you should come back. And that's exactly what happened. I've been here 33 years <laughs> teaching human sexuality and doing lots of fun things around sexuality. Thank you for sharing that. I love that story. And it's I ask this of all of my guests, but it's really unusual for someone to say that they knew at a young age that this was the field that they wanted to go into. In fact, you might be the first person in the 50-some episodes I've recorded who said, you know, they knew well before college. You know, the most common story we hear is kind of that people accidentally stumbled onto it later in life. And, you know, that was the case for me. I didn't know that this was a job that you could actually pursue until I was already in my PhD program. And I think it's also interesting with the timing of when you went into this, because, you know, sex has been taboo. We're a little bit more sexually open now in some ways. And so I would imagine it was more taboo back at the time when, when you went well, into it. You know, I'm going to say something kind of interesting, which is when I graduated from college, I'm we're talking 1980s, I literally thought, I'm not going to have a job mm -hmm. in four years. I mean, what, what, what do we need to be doing? We have an understanding of the importance of sex education. Of course, you have contraception, abortion, all of these things happening. And I literally said, I'm not going to have a job. I can remember too, though, the attitude was sort of interesting. When I was in Syracuse, I had a radio show and a television show and things like that. And that's how I met Ruth Westheimer. She had her show. She was starting in New York City. And it was a good thing. She was such an amazing woman in the field because my mom and dad, <laughs> I remember them when saying, what are we supposed to tell people you're majoring in? <laughs> I had to say, I just tell people health. And it wasn't until Ruth Westheimer really made her sort of fame that my mom was able to say, yes, like Ruth Westheimer, like Dr. Ruth. <laughs> you know, it made some legitimate you know, feelings about the field I was studying. So that was sort of interesting. It's been interesting times. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so true. It, Dr. Ruth broke so many barriers and I think really did help pave the way for a lot of people to enter the field and also to recognize that sex therapy is a legitimate enterprise. So many thanks to Dr. Ruth for that. 
Now, you do a lot of work in sex education in a university, and I know one of the things you do is you teach study abroad courses on sex and culture, and you take university students to a few different European countries, and I teach a similar course, although I've only gone to Amsterdam so far in the Netherlands with my students. But can you tell us a little bit about kind of what your experiences are teaching these study abroad courses and showing students what sex around the world is like? Sure. I started doing this after a sabbatical spent in London, in which while I was in London, I was able to travel to, you know, the convenience of traveling to different cities in Europe. And when I came back, Syracuse asked me, could you start a study abroad program, which I taught for them for over a decade, and then decided, well, why aren't I just offering it through UMaine, where I am as a faculty member? And what I think is really important is for students to really think outside the box, realize it's not just the same everywhere, but the importance of travel and understanding that people have different perspectives. And, you know, the U.S., that attitude of, you know, we're number one in everything. I'm like, yeah, we're number one, all right. And teen pregnancy, STIs. (laughs) (laughs) But it's great for them. The way I've set it up is we go from London to Amsterdam to Stockholm. Many people might say, oh, what can you learn from England? They're so much like us. But in London, you have the International Planned Parenthood headquarters. So it's amazing. They get to meet people who are working all over the world. They also get to visit places like the Terrence Higgins Trust, the oldest AIDS organization in the world. And you think about, wow, what they're doing there. So the way the program is set up, the travel over the three weeks is we spend a week in each city and we get to see firsthand and hear from staff, visit organizations that are dealing with sexual health issues and policy, and they can see sort of how things are different and maybe in some ways more positive and healthy. Naturally, as you know, when they land in Amsterdam and hear about how sexuality education is really about relationships and the curriculum, Love Carefully, says it all. And how I know in previous years, not in the recent years, but in previous years, I've had the students, for example, meet with a high school teacher who says, who has talked about how they never knew a pregnant teenager. And I'm thinking, what? And the students are always like, you're kidding. Because I could probably pick up the phone and call any of my friends who are in public schools could tell you the number of people they know Mm -hmm. currently or have known this school year. So it's been a really great opportunity to open their eyes to how other places deal with issues. I mean, we know, for example, the Netherlands having such a low pregnancy rate among young people and STI rate. Going to Sweden is also really important, having had sex education, what feels like forever. You know, grandparents had sexuality education and the openness and comfort and hearing the difference in terms of, for example, our chlamydia rate being 50 times higher than theirs. It's just great for them to take a look at how other countries might deal more effectively Mm -hmm. around these issues. It's sort of fun because in the Netherlands, as you know, as well, things like LGBT issues, they're sort of way ahead and just hearing the history and how we're just, it feels like in some ways we're way behind and people are always fascinated. Oh, here come the Americans, head in sand, 
abstinence only education what two billion dollars have been spent roughly on <laughs> abstinence only in this country and they think it's sort of funny to meet us and have a conversation about what it means to have a positive approach not so scary thank you for sharing all of that and i love teaching my study abroad course it is such an eye-opening experience for the students in so many ways because you know for example some of the students that i'm taking have never been on an airplane they've never been out of the country and so they're getting this experience that is just totally changing their worldview in so many ways. And it's interesting as part of these courses where, you know, we learn about the positive things, like the things that some other countries might be doing better than we are, but we also learn about the struggles and challenges that they experience too, and how, yes, there are different models for, say, sex work and sex education and so forth. And Every model has its own strengths, but it also has its own limitations. And so it's not as simple as just saying, hey, let's take this model that this other country has implemented and work it back home. So I think it also helps people to appreciate the complexities around all of these mm -hmm. issues. But I will say that teaching study abroad courses as a sex educator has been by far the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my work, just because it is a totally life-changing experience for these students. Mm -hmm. And I love and feel honored by the fact that I have the opportunity to, to share that experience with them. Yeah, it's just incredible. Always rewarding for the students. Yeah. So let's dive into some of this data that you've collected. So you've been surveying your college students who are taking your human sexuality course for more than three decades. And you've amassed this massive data set with responses from thousands and thousands of students. So since we're on the subject of sex ed and abstinence only education and how the US has spent billions of dollars on this, you know, over the last couple of decades, what have you learned through your work about maybe how that has impacted how many college students are having sex or the age at which they have sex. So is this something that has changed over time? Has there been an impact of abstinence-only sex ed on the sexual behavior of college students? It's interesting because I think that people feel like, oh, we should expect all of these huge changes. We've invested, like I said, almost $2 billion in abstinence-only. Has it worked? And it really hasn't changed much at all. One thing that I find interesting is we do talk about hookup culture these days. You hear it all the time, you know, in the media. But surprisingly, in the 30-year span, for example, of this study, the incidence of a student having lots and lots of partners has remained relatively unchanged. And people say, what? Unchanged? You know, it's like, yeah, actually it is. Today's college students might think they're more unique. I like to point out that 30 years ago, we didn't have terms like friends with benefits or hooking up. We called it casual sex. The age of first intercourse, for example, for heterosexual young people hasn't dropped dramatically. It hasn't gone up either. And as far as, like I said, the number of sexual partners has remained roughly the same. I've seen three to four average throughout their, their 30 years. You still see a third of students saying one or two, and another third five or more. 
Yeah, I think your data are really interesting and they line up really well with a lot of other studies I've seen recently that kind of refute this idea that college students are just hooking up all the time and having more sex and more partners than generations past. In fact, if anything, the trend is toward less sex and fewer partners when you start looking more broadly at the literature. And you're right that something like age of first sexual intercourse that's usually defined in the research is penile vaginal intercourse, you know, and certainly that shouldn't be our only definition of sex or what counts. It's just that, you know, there have been limitations in the research in terms of how this has been asked. And so it's hard to compare how rates of different behaviors have changed over time because we haven't always bothered to collect the data. But if you're looking at something like age at which penile vaginal intercourse first happens, for those who are interested in that, it's between 16 and 17. And the trend is actually, it's gotten just a little bit higher overall in the data, but it's not that kids today are having sex at younger ages or that they're having more sex or more partners. Like I said, if anything, the trend is in the other direction. And so it's interesting to contrast those results with all of this money that we spent on abstinence-only sex ed, where we say, wait until you're married. It hasn't worked in terms of translating to differences in, in sexual behavior. And it's also just totally unrealistic if you're telling horny teenagers, like, all right, in an era just where... Just say no. Yeah, just say no. <laughs> if you're telling horny teenagers in an era where average age of first marriage is closer to 30 and a lot of people don't aspire to marriage anymore. Like if you're telling people, keep it in your pants for 15 years, like that's not really going to work out. It's just not a realistic thing to teach. And I think getting back to this European trip, that's one thing that comes out pretty clear for the students to understand. We have a different approach. You know, in America, we sort of look at it as let's shame them mm -hmm. <laughs> between adolescence and right late 20s getting married, we're going to make you feel guilty and shame you versus look at this as this is an important piece of who you are as a young adult. How can we educate you so that you can do something responsibly? You know, we live in a time where we think, or a place where we think that withholding information will lead to responsible behavior. When the irony is it's actually just the opposite, we need to educate and inform and Thank you for mentioning, too, that this research, I think sometimes people think, oh, that's the University of Maine, and maybe it's not relevant, but actually these students are listening to the same music, watching the same movies. They're, you know, influenced by the media, the culture, if you will, like any other student. And obviously being a land grant, we attract students from all over, primarily New England. But yes, it's been interesting to look and hear what they have to say. Yeah, I'm also glad you brought up the average number of sexual partners, because again, you know, there's sort of this perception that students are hooking up a lot, but the average in your work is about five. And, you know, again, for people of that age group, if you look at other studies, you're going to find something pretty similar in that sort of ballpark. Now, it's, I think, kind of fascinating to think about how students aren't as active as 
people think that they are. They haven't had as many partners as they think. But when it comes to something like number of partners, something you've seen in your work is that you have a lot of students who say that they would lie about the number of sexual partners they have if they were asked. In fact, you found that about one in eight, I think was the precise number, said that they would report a different number if somebody asked, with women being more likely to underreport numbers and men being more likely to overreport, but particularly if they're talking to male friends, right? So why do so many people lie about this? And has this tendency changed over time? Do you think people are more comfortable talking about their sexual history today? No. What we've seen over the 30 years is actually that it's remained steady in terms of the number of people who lie and this double standard being alive and well about women saying a lower number and men, of course, with other men. The stereotype is not just the stereotype, it's a reality that they're more likely to say a higher number. And this has remained pretty consistent across the 30 years. I think it's very difficult when you live in a a time where sexuality is sort of shamed and we can't be honest. We're worried about the stigma. The other piece I want to mention about that is not only does it show us that the double standard is alive and well, but it We often will say to people, oh, you know, you need to ask your partner how many people they've slept with, right? As as if it's an insurance marker for your protection. But what this study shows is that the people who lie the most are the people who have had the most partners. Now, I I think it's important to mention as a caveat to that, that simply having a larger number of sexual partners doesn't necessarily mean that you have a greater risk of having an STI. And I've seen this in my own research where, for example, I've compared rates of sexually transmitted infections for people in monogamous and consensually non-monogamous relationships. And I actually find that the rates don't differ. And part of the reason for that is because people who are consensually non-monogamous on average, yep, they do have more partners, but they also take more precautions and they communicate more with their partners. Whereas people in monogamous relationships, there's a lot of infidelity we know that happens. And I know that's something you also asked your students about, you know, where you definitely find that there are lots of people who cheat. And it's actually really those who commit infidelity who are engaging in the most high-risk behavior because cheating often is this unplanned behavior. And so people go into it, they don't take precautions. Sometimes they're really drunk. They don't have an established communication pattern with that partner. And then they go home and they're having sex with their primary partner and they don't disclose that. So, you know, I think when we're talking about something like number of partners, you have to consider the broader context around it in terms of what the overall risk is that's associated with it. Yes. Thank you for saying that. And I think you're making a really good point, which is that, you know, if I'm planning to cheat, right, it's much better in some people's minds to say, oh, it just happened. Yep. So I didn't use any protection, let's say. So that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, that in looking at the data, too, over time, they were asked, you know, have you ever lied to get someone in bed? And we see that about one in 12 students say they have lied mm-hmm. in order to get someone in bed. And this has remained consistent across time. And when you compare, though, who's lying, I hate to say lying, but it is mostly men mm-hmm. who are lying. One in five guys say, oh, yeah, I've done that. So again, just a heads up on the pickup lines, I think is sort of the message there. Yeah. And I think, 
you know, you're right that a lot of people do use number of partners as sort of this marker for risk, but they also don't take into account the risks that are associated with serial monogamy. And so maybe you're only seeing one person at a time, but you're just jumping from one relationship to another without getting tested in between. And then you're not communicating about things with your partners. And so, you know, that can be another risk factor there where, you know, even though somebody is monogamous and maybe they have a smaller number of partners, that behavioral pattern can also increase the STI risk for them. And so I think the, the more important piece of communication here is like, don't focus so much on number of partners. It's really more communicating about STI status um, to really understand, you know, what is your risk in this particular situation. And not to depend on the other person and their response. Instead, to think about your own responsibility to take care of yourself. Sort of not looking for someone to tell you what they've been doing in the past, let's say. And simply caring for yourself, Mm -hmm. keeping yourself a priority. Yep, so true. Now, since we're on the subject of people maybe not being entirely honest about things, something else that you also discussed in your research and in your book is faking orgasms. And Oh, I'm so glad you're bringing that up. <laughs> it's one of my favorite <laughs> subjects. Now, it's interesting that you find that more students today report having faked an orgasm than they did in the 1990s. And further, that it's not just women who fake orgasms. In fact, you find that about a quarter of men say they fake one before. Certainly women are more likely to do it. You find about three quarters of women say that they have. And again, this is also consistent with the other research that I've seen, you know, where there is that big gender difference, but it's somewhere around a quarter of men who say they've faked an orgasm before. So I'm curious when you see this statistic and you see this trend over time, why do you think fake orgasms may have become more common? Why are they on the rise now? Well, let me just say, this is probably one of the more disturbing findings. As a sexuality educator, I'd like to think that I have devoted quite a bit of time trying to educate people about pleasure and taking care of yourself and, and to see that faking orgasm is extremely common in women and seeing it go up over time, over 30 years, it's like, I I often will say to some of my students, you're becoming like my mother's generation, right? Sex has become so performance-based. And this is probably a piece that I wish we were able to focus on more, you know, the pleasure. But this is something you're supposed to enjoy. It's not how am I doing. It's how I'm feeling, right? And uh, I just think it's so unfortunate. And it really is telling about sort of where we're at. Mm-hmm. It's about what you look like and, you know, how you rate. And you and I both know how much trouble that could get you in down the road in terms of your own sexual functioning. And again, we've forgotten what sex is all about. It's supposed to be about pleasure, enjoying each other, not performing. And I think that whether it's, you know, talking with women students, whether to avoid hurting the partner's feelings, you know, they're trying to build up their partner's ego, or they want to make sure there's nothing wrong with them, right? I'm fine. It's amazing the number of women who say, sure, when I ask, do you fake orgasm? It's sort of a shrug in the shoulders. Of course. What do you mean? Why not? The other piece is, as you mentioned, that faking orgasm is not only increased for women, but men too. 
And, you know, many people can sort of wrap their head around women faking because we know many women don't orgasm with just in heterosexual relationship, penis and vagina junk, as we like to say. But how, how is it that men can fake? What's going on that this is happening? And again, I think we are become so performance-based. Yeah, I think there are a couple of other things too. You know, the fact that you're seeing a rise in faking orgasms for both men and women suggests that, you know, there's something bigger that's that's going on here. Certainly, yes, there are gendered effects, but I think part of it is there's a lot of sexual anxiety, a lot of performance anxiety among young adults and Pornography mm -hmm. is something that could potentially be playing a role in it. If people are trying to measure up or compare to the standards that are set by porn, it could also be due to just more generalized anxiety and body image issues with young adults. We know how much pressure there is on people to look a certain way. And if they're bringing that anxiety into the bedroom, it can make it more difficult to become aroused, to stay aroused, to have an orgasm. And, you know, then there's also the incredible rise in use of antidepressants among young adults, which we know one of the effects of that is delaying mm -hmm. orgasm. So that could be part of what's going on here too. And then I think one of the other pieces is that, you know, while rates of sexual activity, you know, in terms of say number of partners haven't really changed that much, the proportion of the sex that people are having that is casual in nature is higher now than it was in the past. And we know that in casual sexual encounters between cisgender heterosexual persons, mm -hmm. that that's where you have the biggest orgasm gap, especially if it's a one night stand or very limited engagement type of thing. We know that for cishet people, the more hookups they have together, the greater the odds of women experiencing orgasms with those partners. Like there's sort of this learning curve to some degree or greater prioritization of women's pleasure over time that happens. And so I think that's that's part of what is going on here is that there's more a greater there's a greater proportion of casual encounters and that's probably contributing to the orgasm gap and the pressure to fake an orgasm. Which is absolutely something I want to also bring up, which has to do with the whole, how important is love mm -hmm. to the relationship? They were at, you know, one of the questions asked over the 30 years, you know, is it important to be in love with the person that you're having sex with? What we've seen over 30 years is that being in love is a, as an important component to sex has really fallen sharply from 70% of students saying, yeah, it's important to now less than half so over time, it's like love has taken a back seat to sexual relationships, and it's really become detached from love. And I think, as you mentioned, when you don't have the connection with someone, you don't have, let's say, the good communication because you just met them, or you don't trust them, or know if you should trust them, or if they really care about you, then it you can see the inhibition. You can see how this sort of sets us up. Now we're back to the faking orgasm, mm -hmm. the performance issues. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that change in how this association between sex and love has changed over time. Now, I wouldn't say that somebody has to love their partner in order to have great sex with them and in order to have an orgasm. And I know you wouldn't agree with that either. Yeah. You know, different things work for different people. Everybody has a different, what we call sociosexual orientation, which is the degree to which they see sex and love is going together. 
For some people, they're intimately intertwined. For other people, they aren't. I think where people sometimes go astray is when they try to have a type of sexual relationship that doesn't really work for their own personal approach to sex. And while they might say on a survey that you don't have to love somebody that you're having sex with, you know, maybe they do need some intimacy or emotional connection still with their partner in order to relax, to feel safe, to let go, to have an orgasm. And so I think it's really ultimately about knowing yourself and what it is that you need and communicating about that with your partner. Yeah, excellent point. Yes. And you're reminding me of something else, which is an interesting study that was done quite a while ago comparing young people in the Netherlands to those, I believe it was in the US, the number one reason given by young people for why they had first sex was because they cared about the other person, they liked them. Versus in the US, why did you have your first sexual experience? Peer pressure to get out of a category, didn't want to be a virgin anymore. And those are telling in terms of how we've set up sexuality, I think in our culture versus in another. Yeah, and the reasons for sex are so crucial when you're looking at what is the outcome of that experience, how much pleasure was experienced, did you have an orgasm, were you able to to really relax and be in the moment and how you look back on it in terms of whether you regret it or you're happy you had the experience. So those reasons for sex are absolutely crucial. Now, we have much more to discuss, including masturbation and kink and how they have changed over time. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Thinking about starting your own podcast? If so, you need the best recording program out there, and that's why I use Zencaster. Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code, SEXANDPSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, to save 40% off their professional plan. Visit Zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Com. Looking for a boost in the bedroom? Our friends at Promescent have you covered. Their line of sexual wellness products includes their signature delay spray that has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel, Vitaflux supplements, massage oils, condoms, and so much more. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S. CENT.com. And we're back. My guest today is sex researcher, Dr. Sandra Karen. Let's talk masturbation, Sandy. How have masturbation practices changed among college students over the last 30 years? And are there any differences between men and women in terms of, say, when they started masturbating and how often they're doing it? Well, it's been interesting to look at over a period of time. In terms of masturbation, men as you might have guessed or others could guess in terms of rate or number of men who say they've masturbated has remained high the entire 30 years that I've been doing this research. It's women who have really changed over 30 years. Um, we've certainly seen an increase in the percentage of women uh, who report pleasuring themselves from about 60% back in the early 1990s to today we see about 75% of women. And maybe that's not surprising when we think about the number of sex toys available online or parties going on in college campuses. The other thing that's interesting is when we look at, when asked, when did you begin 
masturbation or by what age, let's say. It's fascinating because men, most men have masturbated by roughly the age of 13. There's a sort of typical age, if you will. But for women, it literally is all over the place in terms of when did you first masturbate? 11 or under, 12, 13, 14, it goes across the board all the way into college. And of course, the longer they've been in college from first year, second year, third year, fourth year, senior, the rate also goes up. It's like we learn more about ourselves. And it's positive in the sense that women being more literally in touch with themselves that we've seen over time. Yeah. Now, it is interesting to contrast those masturbation findings with the faking orgasm findings because, right, what your data are showing are that more women are masturbating, getting in touch with their bodies, exploring them, understanding what brings them pleasure. But at the same time, they're also faking more orgasms, right? And that seems kind of paradoxical in some ways, right? You would think that, you know, in an era where women are masturbating more and where there's more emphasis and focus on on women's pleasure, that maybe that would translate to more orgasms in partnered sex, but that's not the case. And I think that goes back to some of the other reasons we discussed that there are other things going on here. Absolutely. The whole performance issue, we're sort of back to that, yep. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Now, we've been talking a lot about young heterosexual college students, but another area where you saw substantial shifts in your work was in terms of same-sex experiences and sexual identity. Where I saw the shift is more women are reporting having had same-sex experiences. When you look at the difference between the early 90s, I mean, literally only 5% of college women reported any kind of same-sex experience. But some of the data today you have as high as 25% of women saying that they've had a same-sex encounter. And in focus groups that we've done or I've conducted is, you know, whether it's making out with a girlfriend, right, or it's simply part of same-sex experimentation, of course, a normal part of sexual development. It's just really interesting to see that a lot of these women in discussions with them don't consider themselves bisexual or identify as lesbian. They've had the experience, but that's been a tremendous change, more so for women than men. And, you know, that rise, it's interesting too, happened to coincide. If you look, lay out the 30 years worth of data, it sort of coincides with, do you remember this event, Madonna and Britney Spears kissing on the MTV Music Awards? Yep, I remember. Back in the early 2000s. It's sort of interesting. You just see this chart go up. And uh, acceptance, if you will, for broadening behavior or talking about others' behavior that people are participating in. For many students, talking about being free mm-hmm. rather than being labeled, put in boxes. We know that you know the shift has been so important in terms of acceptance, and allowing people to be who they want to be, or trying things that they'd like to experience without feeling ashamed, I guess, about it. Yeah. And I think you're right that there have been many things in the culture that have shifted over time, especially if you're looking at something like pop culture. And at the same time, there's also been the empirical work by Lisa Diamond and others on sexual fluidity, which has also Mm -hmm. entered the mainstream. And I think there's this growing recognition that people don't have to fit into just these 
neat little boxes in terms of their sexuality and that sexuality can be fluid and dynamic and changing. And I think that that frees more people to really explore their sexuality and to, in some cases, consider different sexual identities because we have more identity options now than we did in the past. So there's, there's simply more options. Well, and just look at things like, you know, over the 30 years, accepting that you have a friend who happens to be gay. And look at the dramatic change that's happened in 30 years, going from, what, two-thirds of college students saying in the early 90s, oh, yeah, that would be fine, to today you have well over 90%. We've certainly come a long way. Yeah, and it's true that when you look at something like bisexuality, it is viewed very differently for men versus women. And for mm -hmm. example, a lot of heterosexual men find the idea of bisexual women to be erotic, whereas you don't see as much of a tendency for heterosexual women to think of bisexual men as being erotic. And there's often this questioning of whether it's bisexuality is even a valid sexual orientation. You know, there's still that stigma and this stereotype that bisexuality isn't real in men and that it's just a temporary placeholder identity <laughs> stopover <laughs> yeah and that they're eventually going to come out as gay and so i think that there's a lot of work we still need to do on dismantling those stereotypes and i think that that in part is a big part of the reason why you see that rates of bisexual identification among women have increased in recent years but not so much for men well and we we also know that we need to move out of the whole labeling and boxes yeah. that we keep trying to put people in. And we know that people change over time. Yep. How I might identify as a high school student may be very different than what happens to me when I end up in college or after I graduate from college. So not sort of feeling like I'm in this box and I have to stay there. Yep. And when we think about just the experience of college, it's so much about learning about yourself, not just learning about a career, an academic subject, but it really is a journey to figure out who you are and what an opportunity it is for young people yeah. when they come to college to have that chance. And, you know, the longer you're in college, you're, the more exposed you are to the great diversity of people. And that's part of the acceptance piece, but also in terms of trying things out. You know, in terms of asking students, you know, what have you done sexually? You see that the longer they've been in college, the more likely they are to have tried, you know, experimented with different things, if you will. Yep. Well, speaking of sexual experimentation, something you've seen in your research is that the sex lives of college students are very diverse. For example, they're having sex in various locations and incorporating kinky things into their intimate lives sometimes. So for example, most of your students reported having had sex outdoors and in cars. Most said that they had talked dirty before and had engaged in spanking. About a third said they had tried bondage. You also found that a quarter of students reported having had sex in their parents' bed. So what can you tell us about how college students' sexual practices or attitudes toward diverse sexual behaviors have changed over time? Is the, the sex that students are having today different qualitatively than it was in the past? Well, we certainly have seen increases in some things like location. There, I always say there's more going on in the library than mm -hmm. we think. And you have, I mean, granted, it's only 4%, but well, who goes to the library to read? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and I think how many parents are sort of semi-horrified to know that their 
their own kids are having sex in their bed. What? A quarter of them have done that. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, yeah, it's just been interesting to sort of look at location, but also the newer questions about what have you done sexually that were added to the survey in the last 10 years really are interesting in terms of looking at all of those behaviors that you just met, things like talking dirty, spanking, uh, using a vibrator. These numbers have gone up slightly over the last 10 years. And also the longer you're in college, these numbers have gone up. A, a first year student might not say they've talked dirty, but by their senior year, oh yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And yeah, so their experience, the broadening of the experience. And again, you're, you're, think about it. You're in college. You're free from your parents' supervision, if you will. And you, know, you get to make these decisions and be introduced to just a variety of people and a variety of behaviors. Yeah. So I think it's great in terms of creativity and, like I said, the opportunity to be able to figure out what is it that I like. Or, gee, I've never tried that. And I thought about it and having the opportunity to safely in the context of, you know, being with someone to try some things out. Yeah. And something else you also report on in your book is that you've also seen greater acceptance over time in terms of things like anal sex and oral sex. And so there seems to be increasing acceptance of various sexual practices and increasing exploration of kink and and other activities, Uh which would suggest that the sex that students are having today, even though they're not necessarily having different amounts of sex than they were before there there are differences in the nature of the sex that they're having and one of the other differences is in terms of safer sex practices right i believe you also found that the degree of people practicing safe sex has increased over time as well correct that's right a really positive thing to come out of the study or looking at it the trends over time is the number of students who yes practice safer sex i mean we see that too in terms of actually lowering rates of STIs among this group. Um, I know STIs is still obviously a big problem, but when you look at the percentage of college students from 30 years ago, about 15% and said, yes, I've had an STI, and today it's much lower. It's more below 8%. Mm -hmm. That suggests safer sex practices. I mean, things like uh, unplanned pregnancy, abortion, staying low, remaining low, having gotten even lower, if you will. Mm-hmm. Students saying that they knew someone who had, for example, a, an abortion, the numbers have gone down, which suggests you know, fewer people having unplanned pregnancies, for example. Yeah, and I think there are lots of things going on there that contribute to that. One that you talk about in the book is the increasing access to long-term reversible contraceptives. So, for example, usage of hormonal IUDs has increased pretty dramatically over the last couple of decades. The use of the pill has remained high across the 30 years. Condom use, yes, absolutely has gone up. Still not as high as maybe someone like myself or you would like to see. I'd love to see more people using, for example, condom for protection if needed. But the IUD, it's interesting. In the early years of doing this, no one, it seemed, an 18 to 22-year-old age group was using an IUD. But in the last 10 years or so, we've seen this sort of real uptick in IUD use to the point where 15% 
of the respondents said, yes, I've used an IUD. Yeah, and I think part of that is because several decades ago, there were some versions of an IUD that came out that were faulty and that led to some serious medical issues and complications. And I think that created a lot of concern about IUDs. People were very hesitant about them and that persisted for quite a while. And so as the efficacy and safety of them improved, I think that's a big part of the reason why we've seen changes in in uptake patterns. Now, we're running short on time, but I have one final question for you, which is about what we can take away from all of this information that you've collected. So what's the main takeaway or what are the implications for sex education going forward? Wow, there is just so much here. (laughs) I mean, first of all, as we've sort of established, college is certainly a learning experience in more ways than one. And these students really have been in many ways, raised with the just say no message around them, but at the same time, the just say yes. So it's very confusing. And what we sort of see from the results is that their sex education has really been left to chance. I have, as I've mentioned, the concern about the performance issue. And what it tells us is we have a responsibility really to prepare them so that they can make more informed decisions you know, we still have a long way to go for people to own their sexuality. The double standard, some of the results suggest that's still around. But without information, including the correct information, I think too many young people end up having inflated expectations, right? And are engaging in sexual acts, not even understanding what they're doing, just kind of going with what they think they should be doing. As we've talked about, one of the most telling disparities is this issue of perceptions versus reality. The question of the faking orgasm is a really good example of that, that we've sort of lost touch with what sex is supposed to be about, I guess. We know that sex education in this country tends to be too little, too late, and too biological. And then, yeah, we need to teach the three R's in school, reading, writing, arithmetic, but we need that fourth R. We need relationships. And that's really what sexuality education is about. We need to help folks really shift from a performance-based model to one that's more about pleasure and connection. And that means we're going to have to talk about pleasure and connection. Mm -hmm. I, as a college professor, feel that how is it possible that I'm the first person telling them that fill in the blank is safe, healthy, and normal? You know, this needs to happen much earlier. Too many of my students, it seems, come with what I call a junior high mentality when it comes to sexuality. It's like they never got anything beyond what they got in middle school or around puberty education, you know, and we really need to help young people focus on real sex, as in R-E-A-L, versus real, as in the media image that they think they're supposed to live up to. Ultimately, I'm hoping that with this book, with this research, we can really get into some more honest discussions about what's going on, what people are doing, what they're feeling, their attitudes and beliefs. And as I love to say, you know, we need more public discussions of private parts. Yep, I agree with all of that. And I think it all speaks to the importance of pleasure-focused sex education. And it can't just be about the basic biology and how pregnancy happens and 
STI scare tactics, right? Uh, we need pleasure-focused sex education. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Sandy. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and get a copy of your book? Sure. We have a website, The Sex Lives of College Students, or they can check it out on Amazon. Thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, which was made on Zencaster, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 